Hey, welcome to season four of the Executor Help Podcast. This season, I'm going to continue to do shows for the people who want a sense of security, knowing that their affairs are in order. So there's no stress or anxiety of not knowing what will happen to your estate and assets after you're gone. I want you to be ready in case of an unexpected emergency like a death, sparing your family from the chaos because there's going to be no plan. I want you to also have some open communications with your family to avoid potential conflicts and misunderstanding that could break up the family. And from time to time, I'm going to have some thought-provoking conversations about death and handling grief. You're also going to learn how to live well, age gracefully, and leave a lasting legacy. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen, and I hope you take some of the action from what you learned from the show. So let's get this thing started. To kick off this new season, I want to start with a bang. My guest, Joe Saul Sihai, is a charismatic speaker, personal finance expert, podcast host, and best-selling author. Now, the reason I wanted to have a conversation with Joe is because he makes personal finance and money management fun. Yeah, I know, talking about money and estate planning can be boring, but not with Joe. Well, you're going to find out. This is the Executor Help Podcast, the show for people who want the sense of security knowing all their affairs are in order. Avoid the stress and anxiety of what could happen to your estate, to your assets, and to your family when you're no longer here. Now here's your host, David Eady. So with me today, actually, I, I, I got to give a little um, little background here. Every time I do, um, you know, have a conversation with the guests, I get really excited because it's always interesting conversations with individuals. And but today, I'm even more excited because of the guests that I have today. Joe Saul Sihai. Uh, give me a little background. Joe has a podcast called uh, Stacking Benjamins. When the book first came out, he was gracious enough to have me on his uh, podcast. It takes place in his mom's basement. We had a great time. His mom was yelling down, what the hell are you two doing down there? Because we were laughing and having such a good time down there. Um, I even told him with my two bad knees and I explained to him how I had those two bad knees before I pushed to record. And, you know, went down the stairs, had a great time. And we hadn't, you know, hadn't talked to each other until recently. We were both at the same uh, conference, FinCon. We were in New Orleans, you know, and everybody was saying, oh, Joe saw Sihai, he's going to be the, the keynote speaker at the end. And I said, okay, fine. So the last time I saw Joe, he was, there was a, you now everybody picture, a Dixieland band coming in and Joe is uh, dressed as a jester. So when I say a jester, we got the bobbles on the head, the thing and everything. And then he, you know, he came in with the band behind him and he went up on stage and did some sort of interpretive dance. Wasn't sure what it was, but I just went along with it. It seemed to make the crowd happy. So uh, I don't like the public shade, but it was interesting. Again, it was interpretive dance. We're in New Orleans. Just run with it. All that to say that sort of preamble, I'm really uh, honored and happy to have uh Joe Saul Sihai on the show with me today. He is the not only the uh, podcast as a um, host of Stacking Benjamins. Uh, oh, little known fact. Did you know, uh, Joe, that I've got listeners uh, predominantly U.S. and in Canada. And so anytime we're going to say Stacking Benjamins, I'm going to let you know in Canada, we're going to be stacking Sir Robert Borden's. Those That's right, are Borden's, stack- Stacking Borden's. Stocking Bordens. And, and and you know what? You made me, because of this show, I had to do a little bit of research because I'm like, all I know is the $100 bill comes in, was brown, but I never knew who was on it. So I did a little research on him. He's uh, Canada's eighth prime minister. 
factor. And uh, so you have the Benjamins, we have the Bordens. But, you know, if you were lucky enough to get, you know, because of the exchange rate, be able to get the Benjamins, we'll work with that. But here in Canada, we'll do, we'll go back and forth. <laughs> all that, that was a long introduction. Uh, Joe Sal Sihai also is the author of your Stack, 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 Your Super Genius Guide to Modern Management. He wrote it with Emily Guy Birkin. And um, I'm really honored to have you here on the show. Welcome, Joe. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thanks a lot, man. And I feel like stacked is an echo. And and if I, uh, and even though it says stack, 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 I think the official name people looking up is just one stacked, but stack, stack, stack. I like that. Like stack, stack, okay, stack. Okay. Well, that's what I thought. Where, where, where is that? But yeah, it works. Again, um, haven't seen you since New Orleans. What made you think that, you know what? I should dress as a court jester or uh, yeah. Mardi Gras jester and go up there and do an interpretive dance. Yeah, to, but the interpretive dance, I don't know anything about that. I just know that I was waiting to start you my were keynote moving. speech. Come on, your hips were moving. I, my hips were my hips were moving, and I was just waiting to start my keynote speech. And as you know, I got rid of the jester outfit, and I was just waiting to start, and they kept playing the music. So I'm like, what, what the hell do I do up here? So I started moving, and people saw, you saw, that I am uh, probably not uh, Fred Astaire. I'm probably, I'm probably not somebody who's going to be on Dancing not in the Stars anytime Rogers. soon. No, not, not anywhere close, but, but I just, I mean, be very, to be very, uh, um, uh, straightforward about it. There were two things going on. Number one is I love that conference so much. And there's so many people that, that attend this conference called FinCon. And these are, these are not people like people in the financial and financial planning industry that I was around. A lot of people in the financial planning industry suits, very boring, very, milk toasty, looking at people with dollar signs in their heads and not even looking at them as real people. These are purely people, as as you've seen, David, these are people that are passionate about people getting financial literacy and people doing a better job. And I've, I've only missed two FinCons out of, I think there's been 14, 15, 16. Right. And um, I've missed two of them. I was MC of, of FinCon for three years, of uh, several years back. So I love the conference. And I said back in January to the creators of FinCon, I said, you know, on the main stage, we even had a big moment. Like, I just want a big, surprising, ta-da moment. Like, we've had some big speakers, but nothing that really was like, wow, did you see what just happened? And uh, and I said, we're going to be in New Orleans, so I'd love to have one of those bands come in. And I said, you know, uh, uh, I have an idea for a talk I want to give, which which is, as as you know, David, was very blunt about what I hate about um, about some bad actors uh, in our in our uh, our field and also a very blunt message again about how much people need us and about how I think it's so important for us to remember how much people need us. And, um, and so, yeah, so I, so, so they, they, they give me this, this, this check to speak and I took uh, a bunch of it and bought a band to lead me in. And I, I dressed up as a court jester for, and by the way, uh, uh, when I said I was going to do that, the creators of FinCod said, we'll meet you halfway. And they actually bought half of the band, which was super cool because right. I didn't expect expect that. I would have done it anyway. I was like, no. I, uh, but, you, it, but you delivered because, I, I mean, nobody expected it. I mean, we're all, <laughs> you know, there's a couple hundred people in the, the room. And um, all of a sudden, there's this music playing. And I'm like, what the? And uh, <laughs> actually, I had to text home to my girlfriend, to Susan, and say, and she'd go, well, how come you didn't answer me right back? And I 
took picture video i could i said because this just happened and she Good. said what and then then she said she went oh and then yeah we got a little bit of your interpretive dance i've got that on yeah on that's but you can delete that part but the other part the court jester part is that I believe very strongly that a lot of people are intimidated by by the stuff that we talk about. And that's why that's why people don't want to talk about estates. That's why people don't want to talk about tax planning, why people don't want to talk about, you know, any of this stuff. And in fact, it, and I think, by the way, part of that is, at least in, in the U.S., the Dave Ramsey slash Susie Orman culture, which, you know, good on them about what they do. But just the idea that I take my money mistakes to this guru and I tell them about how I messed it all up and they yell at you for entertainment purposes, um, which don't get me wrong. I have a lot of fun listening to people get yelled at by Dave Ramsey. Um, just the basis part of me really likes that. <laughs> like just, just like, wow, what a moron that person is. But, but I also think it turns, it turns the people we need to reach most off and it makes them afraid to ask for help because they're afraid we're going to yell at them. And being having been a financial planner, David, for 16 years, uh, I know I kept hearing the question people called the stupid questions over right. and over and over and over and over. Everybody's asking the same questions they think are dumb, which means by definition, they're probably not dumb if we're all asking them. We're just afraid to ask. So the court jester thing just kind of goes along with our Stacking Benjamins thing, which is we need to lower the temperature. We need to realize that this won't hurt you. It won't kill you. You can usually, in a lot of places, estate planning is one of the exceptions sometimes where, you know what, you can go ahead and make a mistake and it's going to be, it's going to be okay. Just, just move forward and, uh, and life will be all right. Just go try stuff. So having been in the industry for so long or for the 16 years, how did that influence your approach in terms of how you do your podcasting and also, you know, your writing? Yeah, great question. Well, the, the the first thing is, is the show is, to your point, live from my mom's basement, specifically because I learned nobody wants to hear two industry insiders who really know their stuff, right? I was with American Express for most of my career. I was one of 12 people in the nation who spoke on behalf of the company before compliance got involved. Other people could do it. I was one of 12 that had clearance to do it ahead of time. And then, you know, then the lawyers would circle behind me and make sure I didn't mess up. But I got to speak first and and then they would, you know, question me later. Um, the uh, so so I'm a guy who has a lot of experience knowing what I'm doing. My co-host is still a working certified financial planner. And uh, but nobody wants to hear that. What people want to hear about is how I tried something it messed up and and it didn't kill me. And 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 stories about, you know, like the horrible story that your your listeners already know, David, about about what you went through, just what we are as humans, we're storytellers. And so uh, that 16 years, number one, made me know that people didn't want that judgment. But also number two, as I mentioned early on, there were a lot of people I met in the financial industry and calling yourself a financial advisor, calling yourself a financial pro is an easy moniker to get. And you can hang a shingle out with very little regulation. In fact, the regulation we have in the United States has almost no teeth. We have this standard called the fiduciary standard, and there's nobody out there uh, telling people that, who are lying about whether they're a fiduciary or not. There's no teeth in that. So I see people on TikTok every day calling themselves as a fiduciary when I know damn well they're not. They, they right. totally aren't. They're product salespeople. <laughs> 
So it's a little so, tighter in, in in Canada. Believe me, as an advisor, there's 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 some teeth to it. But I, I get what you're saying. There's a lot of people who say they're doing financial advising, they're doing financial planning, where they are doing a lot of barking and 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 people are enamored by that. Um, I'm even at the FinCon, there's some people I'm like, really? Some of the stuff some of these people were saying. I, I just looked at them, you know, like the RCA Victor dog and he would have his tilt his head towards the speaker. <laughs> That's pretty much. The, the, I, I just I was just like, and I, okay, we'll move on through through your book. It's very funny. So I mean the convincing that you and I are having back and forth that's pretty much what you've got in in the book because you don't want to make it dry it's 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 not sexy even what I'm talking about estate and legacy planning not sexy topics but adding some humor into it why do you think that's important and and why do you think that uh it's the angle that you want to come in with there's a study that I shared during my talk at FinCon that I think is important for this discussion uh which is this uh, group called Nonfiction Research did a study about uh, the secret financial lives of people in America. And, you know, people, when they can be anonymous, they share some things that they wouldn't share in public. And the big one to me, David, was that 48 percent of people say that they've cried about their money, that they've cried about their money. And I was one of those people back in the and I share this, you know, I share my story very, very much in the book so that people know that I've been in some of these these holes that they find themselves in. And uh, uh, it's funny because you would think that people crying about their money are largely people living paycheck to paycheck. And that is true, but not as true as people may think it is. Of people making $250,000 or more per year, uh, uh, there are just slightly fewer of those people who are crying about their money. So clearly we have, and I know I've seen stats in Canada, isn't that much different. Right. So we clearly have a problem in capitalist societies where our, our uh, values are going one way and our financial direction is going in a whole different way. So I believe the reason that we, we have to laugh about it is because of the fact that these things are so important that we just need to take the teeth out of them and do it. We just need to get it done. And I feel like we build up so much stuff between our ears that we don't get it done. I was just speaking to a woman. Uh, you may know this woman. Uh, she's she's called the Budget Nista. Her name's Tiffany Aliche. She's a wonderful yeah. woman. Tiffany was telling me the story, David, uh, just this last week for an upcoming show of mine, that you know, at age 41, her husband in the morning says goodbye. She gets a text from him uh, that says, you know, what? I've just got this splitting headache and I'm going to the hospital. And she says, you know, he's a little bit of a hypochondriac. Uh, so I was going to let it go. But for whatever reason, I decided, you know, I'm going to go to the hospital, too. He's the kind of guy, she said, that would go to the hospital for, you know, if he's got a little, little tiny pain. She goes to the hospital and thank God she did, because just after she got there, he slipped into a coma. He had a brain aneurysm. He was dead within a few hours. They hadn't done most of their estate planning because they're, David, they're 41 years old. Like who, who thinks they need estate planning at 41 years old? And, and, uh, and Tiffany said, she said they built it up so much in their head and they wanted to do the perfect estate plan and have it right. And, you know, she was beginning to become famous in our little personal finance community and build a following and money was flowing in and it had to be just perfect. So she said, luckily, we'd done about 85 percent of it. 
but the 15% we didn't do cost us. And if we would have just relaxed and got something down, it would have made it far easier than what happened with that just 15% they didn't do. She said that 50, she wasn't able to spend as much time grieving as she wanted to initially because she had to deal with the banks. She had to deal with the financial houses because she hadn't set up the beneficiaries correctly. And, you know, she'd, she'd created in some, and this is a woman who knows better. So I believe we have to laugh about it. We have to laugh about it so that we can, we can just move on and go, Hey, I messed it up, but at least I got it done. Yeah. But why, I know that procrastination is probably the biggest mistake or thing that's holding back a lot of people, not only when it comes to estate and legacy planning, but also, you know, some of the other areas that you cover in the book. Why do you think there's just so much procrastination, especially, especially during these uncertain times? Oh yeah. No, because it's, I think David, it's because it's so big in our head um, because of the fact that that I feel like I need to get it right. Frankly, that's number one. And number two is I also have this feeling that there are these doors in front of me. Like I'm in a hallway and there are different doors I can go in. And if I open one of those doors, I think the lie we tell ourselves is if I open one of those doors and the other doors are immediately closed to me. So, and what I'm getting at specifically is things like goal setting, which is at the base of, I think, this whole thing. What do you actually want for yourself? David, the amount of time people spent in my office when I was a planner, hemming and hawing over that quite, what do I really want? What do I actually want? And you're afraid to say anything because the second that you put into writing that I want X, I think I can't get anything else. When in truth, the real thing that happens is that if we never open any doors, we never get anywhere at all. Right. But I think we continually tell ourselves, well, if I wait, maybe something will hit me over the head, maybe inspiration. No, you just got to start walking. You got to open a door and then that leads to the next thing, leads to the next thing. I also think it's because goal setting in general does not work the way we traditionally do it. And I'll tell you exactly what I mean. The average person, when they're told to, that they should set goals, everybody's heard that, we put them down on a sheet of paper. Right. We put goal one, goal two, goal three, goal four. Two problems with that. Problem number one is these goals now exist in a vacuum. What do we know happens today? I, 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 I'm going to a, uh, a party tonight. And by the way, I'm not making the story up. I'm going to a party tonight. It's a 1950s party, David. I have no idea what the hell I'm going to wear this 1950s. Like that's, that that's happening today. I got to figure out what I'm, what, what I'm, what I'm doing for that. We had, were you born in the fifties. You're, you're born in the fifties. I was, you know? I was oh, born in the sixties. I was born in the sixties. Yeah. Right, so, right. so I've got some stuff, but I don't have all the stuff. I might wear that sweater that I wore that you saw me with the mid-century modern weird sweater I wore to my book signing. If, if that's comfortable for you, go with that. <laughs> go with that. But, <laughs> A lot of guys can pull it off you seem to be one of them and you're comfortable with it. So go ahead. Yeah. I heard from a lot of people. It wasn't comfortable for them, but it certainly looked comfortable for me. But... Buddy, just do you, just do you, <laughs> it doesn't matter. But, but that's number one. You know, we had, we had a couple of weeks ago, my dishwasher broke. My point is, is that real life shows up and these things that you write down on this piece of paper, they go bye-bye immediately when real life shows up. So that's number one. The goals don't truly exist alongside reality. And then the second thing that happens is I've got goal one, goal two, goal three, goal four, but I really don't prioritize them. What are really the most important things and how do they really exist? So what I like doing is something different, which is called timelining your goals. 
you take a sheet of paper and you put your goals. I want this and I want it by this date. Now, everybody's talked about time-specific goals and exactly how much money do I want. But what I really like about it isn't just that it's time-specific. I like the fact that like a good uh, mixed martial arts fight, right? The cage match. You put all these goals against each other and you start asking some basic questions. I got this retirement goal. I got this second house goal. I got this car goal. I got whatever these go whatever these things are. Can I afford all of them? Probably not. If I can't afford all of them, which one is going to win? And I start asking myself these questions. If I'm, you know, 40 years old today and I want to get retirement by the time I'm 65 and I timeline it out, the initial thing, because the average person, before we can talk, we've got this spatial recognition. If we're sighted, I look at that time and I immediately go, oh, 25 years. wonder how much money I got to save per month to make that happen. I wonder what investment would be right for that. Like well, I start asking all these questions I don't ask when I just put my goals on a sheet of paper. So I like goals, fighting it out against each other to find out what I really value. And then second, I also like goals existing in real life uh, against the stuff that happens every day, which means, you know, little things like building an emergency fund and paying attention to my budget. So... Those are the the the, um, the drawings that you're talking about. That's in the book. Yeah. So pick yeah. up the book. You can see exactly what you're talking about, where you're basically drawing your own stick people and oh, with yeah. a line. So if we break it down. And By I, the way, can I tell you something, David, that happened after the book came out? If people if people ever see the book, you just get it from your library and you take a look at the book. Uh, you'll notice that in figure number one, it's it's a person holding it's a person and their spouse. In picture number two, I just have one person and they're holding bags of money. And one of our stackers, which is what we call our Stacking Benjamins uh, uh, community, one of our stackers wrote me and said, you put these two side by side, it looks like one of the people in this thing murdered their spouse and got the cash. And what page is that? Where is that? I remember seeing it. I just can't remember where I where I saw this stick thing. I I never looked at it that way, but I I, I do do remember saying, "Wow, this is an interesting way." And especially when you you talked about the goal setting, that goes against probably the you know the fiber of a lot of how the financial planning industry has you know. Um, led the public to believe in terms of how they should set goals. Do you get in, you know, some of the, cause this seems like a little bit of radical talk that you're, you're saying, do you, have you got any pushback from the, the way you're seeing goal setting to be no. done? That actually, actually the cool thing I'm getting is on the other end. I'm getting the stuff on the other end saying, you know what? The thing that's most important about your money is establishing value. It's not about money. It's about value. It's about time. It's about your life. And if you're spending time, throwing money toward things that you truly don't care about as much as the, the something else that's being neglected that is really a life goal of yours that's why you cry you know getting back to my statistic earlier on so the thing that i'm getting from financial planners who have read the book is i've started with my clients looking at it this way and putting the goals on a timeline and what's cool is then everybody can see it and it makes that relationship stronger between the financial planner and the client or if it's somebody just doing it themselves, it makes you hold on to that goal more deeply and think more deeply about it because you can see the, the, the timeline toward that goal. The other cool thing that it does, David, it helps you set milestones. 
And what always frustrated me when I was a financial planner was this, you know, in America, we're going into an election year. Somebody comes into my office this week, let's say I'm not, I haven't been a financial planner in 14 years. So, uh, but I, uh, 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 somebody walks into my office and, and says, oh, we got the election coming up. What do you think about investing in the election year? What's going on with interest rates? How is that happening? What's going on in the bond market? We spend the entire meeting talking about all this crap we can't control, right? We can't control any of that. What I loved about timelining my goals is I would set these benchmarks every six months and I would, we would meet if my client didn't have an emergency and we didn't need to talk, we would end up talking four times a year, twice on the phone and twice in person during those meetings in person, I would roll out the milestone and I'd say, David, your goal is let's say $2 million today, because you're 40 years old, we need to be at $320,000, let's say. You're only at 310,000 because the market had a bad year this year. Uh, we're 10,000 behind. And the second that I say we're 10,000 behind, you know what we get, you know what we're not focused on? We're not focused on the election. We're not focused on interest rates. We're focused on what do I need to do myself to make this better? And I begin asking questions. Is my asset allocation aligned where it should be based on this goal to help me come out of it? Am I, have I asked for the raise at work that I know I deserve, but people, you know, uh, just under 70% of us report in the same study I referenced earlier that we're underpaid, but we never asked the boss for a raise. Maybe I need to ask for a boss a raise. Maybe I need to, maybe there's this side hustle I've been thinking of doing. I start figuring out how I'm going to fill that in. On the other side, which is really cool, let's say I'm 10,000 ahead. Now I ask David, I ask you a few other questions. I'm like, hey, we're 10,000 ahead. Do you want to slow down your saving now? Because I know you got that big trip to, to, uh, you know, wherever, uh, uh Asia that Europe. you wanted. Yeah. Or Europe or Asia, Africa, wherever that you wanted to take. And it's a ton of money to get to any of those three places that we talked about. You want to take that trip now? Cause we're ahead of the game. Yeah. Do you want to do that? Do you want to speed up the goal or you know, if you speed up the goal, maybe we just keep that momentum going because we know at some point the markets will come down and we won't always be ahead. So maybe we just put our foot on the gas and get further ahead. We end up having these great conversations about the things that we can directly affect versus all this baloney that doesn't matter to the pros. The, but the question when you, um, when you said people are crying uh, sometimes are, are over their money. Is it because they're not where they want to be or they're torn between trying to keep up with their friends and being very materialistic? I mean, is it, is it out of the question to be, want to be wealthy? Is, is it, is it wrong to, to, to chase wealth and be wealthy or is it best to have all of the, you know, the, the, you know, the designer bags, the ex exotic vacations and be able to tell your friends, Hey, this is where I went last year or this year is what I've got coming. Where's this crying coming from? It's so funny, David, when I was a financial planner, because, you know, financial planners tend to attract wealthier people. I found this chasing wealth to be the thing. Then what was funny was when I went over into indie financial media, you know, wealth became a shameful thing. Right. So it was the exact opposite. I'll tell you, based on, you know, that wide range ranging experience on my end, I don't have any judgment either way. You want what you want 
and you value it and different people value different things. Some people love camping and hiking. Some people like my co-host on, on our show, OG, he's like, uh, I went on a bunch of government sponsored camping trips when I was in the military. So I'm never camping again. <laughs> I am going to stay at a high end hotel. And then that is no, he values that no more government sponsored stuff. Uh, I think it comes from two different places. I think for the people living paycheck to paycheck, they're crying because they dug themselves a hole and they can't get out of it. And they're in this cycle that they just can't get out of. And the frustrating things is, at least in the U.S., some of the institutions out there aren't truly helping them. And I'll give you my personal example. When I was in my hole in the early 90s, and this is when I cried about my money, I was digging myself a hole every month, David. I was doing just horrible, stupid things with my money. Bank of America was standing behind me, handing me bigger shovels and charging me $40 overdraft fees over and over and over and over and over. And I would, I would get so close. And I remember thinking over and over, I just need one break. If I can get one break, but by the time I realized I needed a break, I was so, I was so in over my head that, that, uh, it just kept compounding and bank of America just made it worse. The, um, on the other side though, people making over 250,000 and half of those people crying about their money, David, leads me to believe that it isn't just an income problem like it was for me. It's also just we're chasing things we don't really care about and we know it deep down. Deep down, we know I'm putting money toward this crap that does not make me feel better. I keep doing retail therapy, which doesn't help instead of giving myself this foundation, which I know will, will, will help. So what was the... When you were crying over your, with your money, what was the defining moment? What was, when did you have that aha moment? I need to change. What, what, oh, what, yeah. What flipped the switch? So I, th this is funny because this it goes back to our, our conversation that all financial planners aren't created equal. So I was a financial planner. I a bit when I was horrible with money. I was just over a year into the business. I won all these awards for the company I was with by being one of the top advisors in the United States. I could dish out great advice to lots of people because of the fact that my background wasn't in finance, which is another story. I could talk like the person next door, not like a finance major. So people were attracted to the way I delivered the advice, which helped the quote sales part of it. So I'm bringing in all this money. This is, you know, 1994. And, um, and I, uh, I believe that year I made close to $90,000, which today, you know, every 18 years prices double. So that's, you know, today that's making almost $200,000 a year just to tell people kind of where I was. So I'm bathing in money. I'm spending all of it. And the lie that we tell ourselves is by the way, and this is a lie is that if I just make a little more money, I can out earn my bad spending habits. Just got to make a little more. But you know what? I made I made close to 90. I spent 110. If I would have made 110, I would have spent 130. Made 130, I would have spent 150. I had no systems. I had no concept of what a budget was. I had horrible friends that were just doing stuff and I wanted to participate and I'm a joiner by nature. Um and so that's that is that is lie. That that's a big lie. 
the 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 other lie that we tell ourselves is is that I can handle it next month. I can handle it next year. Uh, frankly, the biggest lie is one my friend Buffy Purcell says, which is three words: I deserve it. Right? I'm dead broke, and I think I deserve it. So I'm going to go buy this thing, even though I can't afford it. I'm counseling these clients of mine. They're taking all my advice. I'm taking none of my own advice, right? I'm doing stupid crap with my money while I'm advising other people. I'm at an office across town from my house. Uh, I'm in Detroit at the time. I get halfway home and I run out of gas on this back road. And I have borrowed money from my, my family because my credit was crap. My credit was gone. I uh, could not borrow money from anybody at that point. I was completely tapped out. And I realized that day on this dirt road that I am screwed, just completely screwed. I don't have any gas in my car. I can't get home. I'm digging through the seats of my used beat up minivan, which I would, by the way, park way far away from our office because I was embarrassed because this car was so bad. I didn't want my high end clients to see that their advice giver is driving this piece of crap, which, by the way, it was funny. I know it never got through my thick skull that I should do what I'm what I'm telling other people to do. I'm too busy faking it. Right. And right. doing whatever the hell I want to do. Like none but of this applies all the money to me. that you're spending. You didn't have a nice car. What were, what were you spending your money on? Well, what's funny is this is, this is a wild thing, David. So I go to, I go to get a car. Um, and I realize that, that I, I have no cash to go get a car. Oh, we were taking great vacations. I was taking fantastic vacations. I lived in a neighborhood. I had no business. My housing cost was through the roof. Um, we had a, we had a, a lease on my spouse's vehicle while we still had some credit that was like a monster amount of money every month. Like every stupid move you could do with your money every month we were doing. Uh, I, I, I came clean with a friend of mine. I'm like, dude, my credit is trash and I need a new car. I can't, I can't get one. He goes, go to a new car dealer because those guys, you know, they've got this financing, you know, you don't have shoes or clothes on no problem. <laughs> like you can get credit. So I walk into this car dealer after my buddy, Dan tells me, yeah, a new car dealer will do it. Now, by the way, I can't get a used car, which is what I know I need. I can't get a low price car. I'm going to go buy a high price car because I can get a loan. I don't have any money, but I think I can get a loan, even though my credit score is horrible. I walk up to the salesperson and I'm just completely blunt with him, David. I said, Hey, uh, my credit is, is just absolutely horrible. He goes, Oh, no problem. We deal with people with bad credit all day. He's like, what's the social security number? I give it to him. He's like, I'll be right back. Goes, goes back to his office. Dude's gone forever. Comes back and goes, man, you weren't kidding. I can't find you alone anywhere. It was, wow. It was, it, it was bad. So what happened was to finish up the story is I end up walking about a mile. This sounds like an old guy story, but I'm walk about a mile to a gas station. The dude at the gas station does not want to loan me the plastic gas can. Cause he thinks I'm going to steal it. Like how low is this? I've already cried on the side of the road. I found 85 cents by the way, in the, in, in the, the cushions of my car. Um, and I hand him the 85 cents. I finally have to hand him my wallet, which has a bunch of credit cards in it that don't work and my ID. I hand him that as proof that I will come back with this plastic gas can. I put 85 cents in the gas can. I walk back. I fill my stuff. I have no idea, by the way, how 85 cents made it home. Gas was a lot cheaper than number one. But number two, it still shouldn't have made it. Somehow I made it home. 
we figured out the next day and uh, I lived, I lived to live another day, but, um, but that's when I cried about my money. Wow. So to wrap up, just talking about investing in the book, how do you motivate individuals to tackle the aspects of like getting out of debt um, and dealing with it head on and also investing in these, uh, in these difficult times? Cause we're all being bombarded to buy this, go here, spend, 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 spend. We're being bombarded everywhere. How does how do you help people in the book in those areas? Yeah. So um, and I tell this story about, you know, when I got into credit card debt at first in college, I went and I bought this sweater from Nordstrom. And uh, which is funny because I was at a military college. I couldn't even wear a sweater. And it was in Charleston, South Carolina, where it's cold enough to wear a sweater maybe two days a year. But it didn't stop me from going to the most expensive store in the mall and buying one of the most expensive things you could. So, you know, talk about dumb stuff. But the problem is, is our brain sees that sweater and it's a beautiful sweater. I should have brought it because I, I I keep it in my closet uh, just as a reminder. And it's still, you know, it's from 1987 and it's Duran Duran beautiful. It is just absolutely, yeah, 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 it, yeah, yeah. it says late 80s all over it. But this, but, but the problem is I know the price of the sweater. What most of us don't know, and this is how to motivate yourself. We don't know the cost of those things we really value. So the quicker you do that timelining process, and I know that the thing that I value is financial independence, or I value living in a better house, or I value putting myself through college, I value whatever it is, these costlier goals in our life, and we're able to put a price tag on that. Now I'm not looking at the sweater in a vacuum. That day in Charleston, South Carolina, I'm looking at the sweater and that's all that was on my mind. But if I've got sweater versus this is what my financial independence costs and I can't afford both. Number one, I'm going to fight procrastination because I know that price on financial independence or whatever the long-term goal is goes up every month. I don't save for it. The second thing is, is I also am able to evaluate them against each other. And I stop making dumb purchases about short-term stuff and turn on the, the, the other one. The third thing I like, and I'm not big on the, you know, I like the carrot. I'm more inspiration, aspirational than, than, uh, than the stick, you know, than watch out. But Susie Orman uh, said something that truly resonated with me. So I'll give credit there where it's due, which is this. If you look at this long-term goal and you say to yourself, I can't afford to save for that today. Imagine it's a year before that date, the date of that long-term goal, and you've done nothing. How do you feel then? Like if you don't think you can save for retirement, you're 35 years old, you've never been able to save, and you want to retire at 65. Now you're 64 years old and you've done nothing. How are you going to feel at 64 if your retirement savings is absolutely zero? And David, that that fear, <laughs> that's a motivator. Yeah, that's a motivator. Yeah. Going. In your opinion... How crucial is estate planning and what are some of the common misconceptions when people start thinking about um, this area of financial management? I know in the book you call it estate planning, the final frontier. Why is that? In part two of my conversation with Joe, we talk about why he calls estate planning the final frontier and why it's so important to set the table, so to speak, to save your family from breaking up. But here's three takeaways from Joe you can do right now. Set milestones for financial goals. Put an emphasis on value, time, and life goals over money, and take the time to think about the consequences of buying expensive things. 
Until the next time. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Can you do me a favor? Show some love for the podcast by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Can you share it with your community? Subscribe or follow on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want more information, free resources, or just want to get in touch, go to davidede.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.